The roots of the tree in whose shade we sit, the tree which nourishes us, in fact, whose very branches and leaves we become to offer shade to those who need us, those roots are ancient and they are resilient. Today, a history lesson with no test at the end. A few ideas on how the way that we here at First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis practice religious congregational humanism is connected, indebted, and obligated to the heretics of centuries past who thought and read and wrote and organized and died to advance the cause of not only theological freedom, but of religious freedom, the freedom to gather as nonconformists. History, as you know, is written by the winners, and references to those who have the privilege, the education, the wealth, the power to participate. So with few exceptions, very few exceptions. This story is populated by men of European descent. It is well to name this at the beginning and to ask who is not at the table. I preach that sermon almost every other time I'm up here, but I just want to name it. Today I want to draw a line from the Edict of Torda. David, you did a, a wonderful job with the children. Basically, that was the whole sermon. So if you want the cliff notes, you, you're done. I want to draw a line from the Edict of Torda, proclaimed 450 years ago today, on January 28th of 1568, in Transylvania by the only Unitarian king in history. Through the church and Western history to this day, and to imagine whether, to imagine together what may be said of us by generations we shall never see. So a few points of background on this timeline. In 325 was the Council of Nicaea. The Roman Emperor Constantine needed to unify his empire against threats on all sides, and he knew, he was a savvy fellow, and he knew that by bringing uh, the uh, strength to the fledgling Christian movement that he could consolidate power, and, and he had a plan for how to do so. So there were arguments in the streets, and there was graffiti on the buildings, and there were uh, lewd songs about people who had different theological points of view. I think that kind of sounds exciting. Uh, <laughs> It was really over the nature of Jesus. Who was Jesus as the Son of God? Was he divine or wasn't he? What was the nature? And every argument needs at least two sides. And in this argument, Arius was our man. Arius was our man. He was a strict monotheist. He thought there was, at most, one God. And he argued that while Jesus was divine... He was less so than God the Father, that his teaching, Jesus' teachings were more important theologically than his death and resurrection. Heresy. I mean, no, really, heresy. 
It was deemed a heresy, a word that we proudly embrace, and I love this, heresy comes from the Greek, heretikos, which means able to choose. To be a heretic is to be able to choose, to speak against what was the orthodoxy, the received wisdom. Constantine got the Nicene Creed. Some of you grew up with the Nicene Creed, right? Arius was exiled, Rome survived, and the church, capital C church, because there was only one church at the time, was embedded as a central pillar of political power. All right, fast forward from 325 to 1439. When a German blacksmith named Johannes Gutenberg perfected his movable type and quite literally changed the world. I want you to look around and see the various generations that are present in this room right now. Right? See each other? We range in age from the 90s down to a lot less than that. <laughs> Our children have gone out, but the kind of communication revolution that has happened in Ruth's lifetime, in many of our lifetimes, cannot be overstated, right? The way we're able to share information and the way information is democratized, that's what, and even more so, what Gutenberg's movable type and printing press did to begin the modern era. His inventions, including oil-based ink, adjustable molds, mechanical removable type, and the use of a wooden press, all combined into a practical system for the mass production of books. Now, you may have heard of or may have seen the Gutenberg Bible. Gutenberg chose his Bible as his first book, not out of piety, but because he thought it would sell. <laughs> and it did. But the theological implications were vast because prior to Gutenberg, only priests and monks were allowed to read the Bible. Now it was, at least theoretically, available to anyone who could afford it and knew how to read, right? So for those who have access, interpretation soon followed. It was no longer received wisdom. You were able to read for yourself and go, oh, well, they're wrong about that. Some years later, a sort of middling priest named Martin Luther traveled from Germany to Rome on church business. He was appalled by what he saw at the time as the iniquity and excesses of the church, especially the practice of indulgences, in which a believer could pay to have a loved one get out of purgatory, right? This was how the church at the time raised money. They, they sold indulgences. Martin Luther went home. He wrote up his grievances, all 95 of them, and as he, against his own church, and as was the practice at the time, he nailed them to the door of his church in Wittenberg in 1517. He protested. He didn't want a new church. He wanted reform. 
protester. He was the Protestant Reformation. I was an adult before I completely got that, so I'm lifting it up. <laughs> the protesters, the Protestant Reformation. In 1531, a brilliant Spaniard, a theologian, physician, Renaissance humanist named Michael Servetus published a book called On the Errors of the Trinity. Certainly a heretical book. And in 1553, The Restitution of Christianity. Do you all know what I mean when I say the Trinity? I don't want to assume that everyone in the room knows what that means. In, uh, as a, a church dogma, as a theological dogma, the Trinity is the Godhead, the arrangement of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And out of the Nicene Creed, they decided that they were three persons in one essence. That's the Trinity, so just so, so you know. Well, Servetus now has the book. He can read it. He says, it's not in there. It is not in there, right? And he was a scrappy and sort of arrogant fellow. And he said, it's not in there. Uh, in, in his book, The Restitution of Christianity, just as an aside, he was the first person who described the way the pulmonary system worked. He was also a scientist and contributed that. He taunted his arch rival. They were in school at the Sorbonne together. His arch rival, Jean Calvin, better known to us as John Calvin. And he, uh, Calvin was a church reformer and a heretic hunter. If he had had, if there had been a reality show at the time, there would have been John Calvin, heretic hunter. <laughs> Servetus's central claim about the falsehood of the Trinity, that Jesus could not be divine and the church was wrong, 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 meant that Calvin was after him. Eventually, Servetus, who did not have to do this, found his way to Geneva where John Calvin had his church. And he went to church one day. He just was rubbing it in the, in the guy's face. Well, Calvin burned, had Servetus burned at the stake with all of his books gathered around him. But three copies survived. And there's a marvelous book I highly commend to you called Out of the Flames. It's, uh, it's an exciting romp through this history if you like such things. Those three books were picked up and his ideas were discussed among theologians and thinkers around the European continent. So King John Sigismund, who is the young, sickly, curious, and smart king of Hungary, and particularly this part of Hungary called Transylvania, far eastern area, that was in the borderlands of the Ottoman Empire. And, and the Ottoman uh, Emperor Suleiman actually liked John Sigismund, and he kind of gave him some protection. And so politics plays a part in this as well. When he was sick, this King John was sick, a, a doctor came to visit him named uh, Biandrata, and, and uh, George Biandrata, and he had heard Servetus. He had heard of Servetus's ideas. And as he was nursing Sigismund back to health, 
He talked to him about the unity of God. Do you get it? Trinitarians and Unitarians. Do you get where the name comes? About the unity of God. And another theologian named Francis David came and, and continued this idea and converted young King John Sigismund to Unitarianism. What it meant, what, what Francis David's idea and his theology was, it wasn't just to establish a new denomination, but to say that the church must have its eyes open to human progress and the progress of the human mind and soul. It really takes what we think of as Renaissance humanism, reading meaning into human stories, that, that all of the information we need is not received divine wisdom, but that we can move forward and have human thought propel us in a way. He believed in the thought of scripture, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And, and the, the text that we remember from, the quote we remember from Francis David is, we need not all think alike to love alike. I ask you again to look around among us. We think that we are, and in many ways we are, a very homogeneous group that we are all humanists of exactly the same stripe. I've talked to you, I know that's not necessarily true. <laughs> we have some different ways of thinking, but to sit in these pews together, and this afternoon, for us to be in that conversation of multi-faith people working to eradicate a social ill, I don't have to agree with Rabbi Zimmerman or Pastor, the minister at Westminster, Tim Hart Anderson, I don't have to agree with their theology. We need not think alike to love alike. That lives today. It was Francis David who argued at the Diet of Torda for this idea. And here's what it said. I will, I will, uh, maybe correct David ever so slightly, maybe give uh, complexity to what he said. It wasn't that anyone could believe anything they wanted. It was that each church in Transylvania could have a minister who could preach the gospel as they saw fit, whether they preached the Trinity or not. That was huge. And we wouldn't necessarily recognize that among us today, but it was big. Nobody had said that before, and not exactly the same way since. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can look it up. <laughs> the effect here was that in this country, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Unitarians, Protestants, and Catholics could preach to their congregation, they could coexist side by side, that they could tolerate difference. It was the first whisper of congregational polity. It was remarkable, unique in history, and short-lived. Just three years later, young King John was injured when his carriage overturned, and he died without leaving an heir. 
Transylvania, as I've said, was on this border country, and the rulers who followed needed the protection of the Catholic Church to withstand the next annual raid by Suleiman's forces. Politics and religious power subverted reason and inquiry and tolerance. Hmm. And so the Renaissance rolls on. Francis Bacon describes the scientific method in 1620, and the age of enlightenment begins. Deism, a theology that uses the shorthand of God as the clockmaker who sort of sets the universe in motion and doesn't further intervene, believed in human experience and rationality rather than religious dogma and mystery, and that that determines the validity of human belief. The pilgrims came from England to the shores of the so-called New World and established the Cambridge Platform in 1648, which defined congregational polity. That says, and you participate by it, we all participate by it, we members of this congregation. It means that what we decide to do here, who we call as a minister, what we decide to preach here, is up to us, that there's no parent church that says this is your liturgy for today or you have to do something like that. We do have the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations, but believe me, they know they can't herd these cats. <laughs> the colonists also of the so-called new world also rise up against parental rule and establish a new nation and let us tell the truth this nation is one that is built on genocide and slavery among the founding fathers were those who pro professed unitarian thought although there were no unitarian churches of the day they were congregational churches so if somebody says Thomas Jefferson was a Unitarian, that's not quite true. He did edit a Bible, the Jefferson Bible, which includes only portions of the Newer Testament that did not include the miracles, but only the life and morals of Jesus. He was a scientific thinker. Let us think rationally about this. The historical critical method of biblical research is also on the rise, which treats the Bible as a historical document, subject to research and inquiry in the way other historical documents are. It was William Ellery Channing in 1819 who preached the sermon, Unitarian Christianity. And in that day, Unitarian was a pejorative term. Oh, those Unitarians. They don't believe in the Trinity, right? And he finally said, fine, you're going to call it that? I'll claim it. Think Obamacare, right? It was a pejorative first, and then it was claimed as, all right, you're going to call it that? We'll call it that. Re what Channing said was, read scripture as a historical document, that Christ was fully human, not divine, and that our moral nature, our conscience, is defined by love and not by sin. Hallelujah. 
1859, the world changed again so profoundly by the publication of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. How humans understand ourselves as beings in the world connected to other life forms was completely radical. This congregation, First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, was gathered in 1881 in part to discuss and speak of the ideas of Charles Darwin, where people without regard to theological difference, this is in the charter, may unite for mutual helpfulness in intellectual, moral, and religious culture. Here in this congregation, we preached about suffrage and women's rights. John Dietrich came here in 1916 to create a new idea of religious humanism, a religion without God. There was freedom here to think that. In 1933, the Humanist Manifesto was articulated and signed with John Dietrich as one of the key thinkers of that document. And it said in part that nothing religious is alien to humankind. During World War II, Unitarians helped see what was happening in Europe and bring Jews out of that horror. And Unitarians stood up against, some Unitarians stood up against the policy of isolationism. During the Cold War and in, in the years of uh, anti-communism, this congregation stood up for people who were blacklisted and there was an anti-nuke movement, an anti-nuclear weapons movement that, that came out of here that was strong. We were part of the civil rights movement. Do you know that Dr. King, actually Coretta Scott King attended a Unitarian church for quite a while in Boston and, and Dr. King would go with her when he was doing his doctoral work in, in Boston. And they considered out of where could they lead the civil rights movement. He knew he had work to do. And they considered leading it as a Unitarian movement, but he knew he didn't have enough strength and power in the Unitarian church. Consider that, that there would not be enough power and enough people of color that would gravitate to this movement. So do not be mistaken that we are on a pinnacle and don't have a lot of work to do. But Unitarian thought influenced Dr. King Second wave feminism and abortion rights were connected to this congregation and Unitarianism writ large. The Planned Parenthood of Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota got in some ways its start right here out of the Birth Control League. In, 19, in the 1980s, as David said, the Humanist Institute was founded with Corin Arizian, one of the ministers here is one of the key thinkers of that. Gay marriage was a major proposition that came out of Unitarian Universalists, really worked hard with that. The environmental movement, all of these things that we read and things that Unitarians and Universalists see as needs to be corrected, social human ills to be corrected, we have worked on because we read and we think and we are nonconformist, we are countercultural. And that connects us back to Torta. Do you see? Does it make sense? There's a lot here about process and content. 
Unitarianism and universalism and humanism is not finished. We're not there yet. We are ever moving forward as a progressive movement. But what we are about is process. We don't have to think alike to love alike, but let us continue to move and to love and to question. What is our role in dismantling a culture of white supremacy? That's our work, and I believe it is our next and most important work. How are we coming together to solve environmental ills? Because we believe in science. Yes. Access to knowledge, resilience, these are what bind us. That is our process. So let us make knowledge accessible to all and be thoughtful in who's not at the table and how can we use that knowledge. May we be willing to sacrifice for this faith, this faith that has resilience and humility and bases itself on inquiry. And may we be courageous enough to act to bless the world.